Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And Associate Professor Dave Nichols joins us once a month-ish to talk all things urban planning history. And uh, I suppose... 2019 is almost in the dustbin of history and we're going to talk about, I don't know, big infrastructure spending, combustible cladding and what that's done to us and many other things and perhaps look forward to 2020 and what might be big in urban planning. That's not history though, that's future. Uh, Thank you for pointing that out, Carly. Yes, true. Are you qualified to talk about the future then? Who is? Dylan, seriously, who is? Who is? Yes, I am, as much as anybody. I think economists. As a human. Commentators, talking heads are qualified to talk about the future. Really? Okay. Well, let's go get some of them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, all right. (laughs) Um, Well, I mentioned combustible cladding and Mm. I didn't say level crossing removals, but I think that is also something that people would be happy about the results of some of these level crossing removals. Other people have been on delayed trains for for months and years. No, no, it's been a massive nuisance. And it obviously, you know, some people I think are really shocked that it, it doesn't really reduce the travel times for a lot of trains I think what it does do is it makes the car stuff easier for better or worse uh, I guess there are ways of, of looking at that actually I don't see how it could be worse exactly unless everybody suddenly decides to get in their cars instead because it's so much easier to drive around but we know that it's not in this city it's increasingly more and more difficult yes I, th- I don't think anybody you know we're, we're all I find that level crossing removal stuff massively irritating but I'll forget as, as we all will over time but the actual, you, you might mean the, the fact that they're being built or it's, Sorry, you know, the, the debate about it yeah, is... The, the yeah. Sort of in the, in the day-to-day dealing with it. Right. What do you uh, find irritating about it? It's just, a, it's just an impediment to my free movement around, to, you know, mm. and uh, I, I have the right... <laughs> to go anywhere I want at the time. Well, in my area, it's about to start next year, I think. Yeah, yeah. And we're already getting maps in about how on earth you're going to get across certain roads and around the shops and yeah, all that yeah. sort of stuff, which yeah. is sort of helpful, you know. I've stuck yeah. it on the whiteboard. So you've, you've uh, invested in a balloon or something or a Zeppelin or something. To... I, I figure I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to go right around it. I'll just add right, an extra right. 2K to my bike ride and get... You know, Whoa. get out of there. Really? Okay. No, that's smart, actually. Yeah, thanks. So it's a design as well that's got a lot of people kind of upset about proposed designs for particular stations and that kind of thing as part of this uh, big yeah. proposal. Exactly. Well, th- and that I think is that's interesting uh, in in as much as you know, ra- railway stations have always been you know been upgraded and stuff, and nobody's ever um, happy in the moment when those things happen. Uh, and some of the some of the stations are. I think what some people object to some of the time, and they also object to the new stations on the on the new uh, city loop line. That they look like someone's really striving hard to be iconic and you know tr- to make something that that stands out. I actually, I think that's kind of a knee jerk reaction, and in, in some ways quite a conservative reaction. That um, you know people should just try and get over that. Don't you think? What about the architecture? Yeah, well, the like architecture try, try and the hard presentation. It's a you know those things. <laughs> I don't have an. I have not formed an opinion about the the design of different stations. Although I know, again, you know, communities are redesigning some of them, saying this is what we'd prefer to see. Great, communities are great. <laughs> End of segment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've been at the State of Australian Cities Conference in Perth, Dave. Is this was... the kind of thing you talk about? Uh, yeah. Level yeah. crossings and no, le- yeah. no, we don't. No, um, it's. Look, the State of Australian Cities Conference uh, is, it's actually, you know, it's a great, it's a great sort of touching base thing for a lot of people who work in, um, you know, built environment disciplines uh, and also who work in practice. So developers and designers and architects and, and a lot of academics. So, you know, you can go to a session there and you'll, you know, there'll be, of course, they're, they're grouped under loose umbrella terms, but you may well find, you know, uh, someone who's responsible for uh, the design of Williams Landing, you know, down in Laverton, uh, up against uh, a, a much more um, a theoretical paper from, a, from, a, uh, from an, an academic uh, up against 
uh, a PhD student's you know uh, presentation of findings. So, or when I say against, I mean in all together in in the one um, in the one session. Uh, what you come out, you know, I guess sometimes you come out of that more confused than you were when you went in, and sometimes you can kind of form a, an overall impression of. Um, you know where things are at in the in the present, uh, and you know in in terms of generalities, uh, the state of Australian cities uh, is is generally speaking um, just as awful as it's always been. And you know I think we all we're all fully aware that we have this ongoing problem with um, with the way that our cities are run. Perth, by the way, is you know nothing's perfect but Perth has got a lot of things really right which other cities other capital cities in Australia haven't managed to do so Perth has committed in the last I don't know how long 20 30 years to committed to actual uh, new railway lines and by which I don't mean two extra you know stations at the end of an existing line but like whole new things yeah they've got that one up the freeway they've got yeah they've done some really it's been you know, very very progressive in uh, in Australian terms, um, and you know, really so really nicely done. And it's they've managed their expansion. It's a weird city in so many ways. Perth I mean, it is very car oriented, and it it's long and thin. You know, it, it hugs the coast, so it 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 goes you know north to south. I don't know how far, but a long way, uh, and not not nearly as much um, east to west. But it's um. You know, so I suppose in that sense, it, it makes sense that it, that they would invest heavily in rail, um, but um, but you know we don't often in Australian cities people don't do things that make sense. In this case, uh, they've actually done done the right thing, and they you know and I just I love going there. It's beautiful. It was incredibly hot. It was re- repulsively hot last week, um, but but even then, um, unlike Melbourne in Perth, they know they live in a hot place. Uh, obviously, it's it's hot more of the time than it is in this city. But you know, when it's hot, the, the buildings are designed to uh, to manage that a little bit. So yeah, yeah, and you've got the Indian Ocean; you can just have a dip. It's right. It's, uh, it's such a beautiful city, and it has it has a lot of natural advantages. It cools down at night. Yeah, uh, I mean, we know from the cricket coverage that the Fremantle doctor comes in what three in the afternoon or something. I believe that's the doctor. The doctor pays. His or her visit, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, is there a sense when you go to things like the uh, the cities, state of the Australian cities conference, that people feel like they're working towards the same goal, or is it sort of a whole lot of people coming together, all doing different things, it's and a great maybe question. maybe it adds up to something coherent, but maybe it doesn't. Look, you know, it's it being December, as you said before, and you know we're we're all exhausted, everybody, and we're all you know. Um, those of us who were predisposed to being jaded are like super jaded, uh, you know, um, uber jaded. Uh, it's, you know, I think in a way like people are working towards, you know, people are, are identify the same problems um, and I think it probably depends on your, your personality type whether you think that you can, you know, affect change or, or not or or what the best way to go about that might be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, so... I think that there's, you know, there's clearly um, consensus on the the problems that face, you know, not just cities per se, but you know, so, uh, society, most of which is urban, in the um, in the 21st century. But and I think there's probably broad understanding of how that would be ameliorated. But you know, whether it can actually be done, that's uh, that's the other. And I think question. people and people. I mean, at the moment, all all I see is photos of Sydney, you know, covered in yeah. in smoke, and this idea yes. that um, the urban areas are being visited by the very immediate and scary, um, well, natural disaster that is unfolding across New South Wales. Sydney is not immune from it. I mean, I know Sydney has actually had fires right in right exactly. in the suburbs as yeah. well, but. Uh, something serious is going on mm-hmm. there right now, mm. and having Australia's largest city blanketed in thick smoke is full on, That's and it's vile. affecting people's health. Totally, I know. If, you know, I, I could I couldn't go there. I, I I've got enough problems with my breathing as it is. I, you know, I couldn't go there. Um, yeah. So yeah. So it's a, a you know a health hazard, but obviously it's symptomatic of other stuff, and you know. 
just to uh, just to state the bleeding obvious, like you, we can go to something like the State of the Australian Cities and talk about what should be done and so on. But at present, while well, we've got seriously such an awful federal government at the moment that I don't know, I don't really know what 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 could be changed. You know, what's what's um, one of the things that I'm going to be working on in the next year, a project that I've got coming up is looking at. Um, climate emergency declarations at local government level. And it is, it is actually really fascinating to see how local government um, in, across Australia and across the world is actually taking the lead on this, this kind of stuff. I mean, in Australia, local government is uh, in many ways uh, ineffectual, almost by nature provincial, but, um, but they are you know, doing a bit of um, joining up on this kind, of, this kind of stuff and at a way that, you know... I mean, state a progressive state government could will sort of uh, talk talk the talk a bit. Um, the federal government in this country, you know, just doesn't not want to know, and um, and yet some many local governments are actually and Darabin was the first, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so, what does it mean for for local governments to be kind of coming together and you know declaring a climate emergency and pushing for action? I guess given that their you know power to affect change is is somewhat limited yeah that's right what does it mean Mm. that's what i'm going to be looking at with this project um you know this is and it's me and 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 other colleagues um it's it's kind of i wonder if listeners some some listeners um will remember the nuclear free zone um declarations that were um pilloried in the 70s and 80s, it was just like, you know, well, when the atom bomb goes off, we'll make sure that the radiation doesn't fall in, you know, Thornbury. But um, but it was an amazing uh, consciousness-raising exercise, really, and did make a lot of people think about, you know, just, just those kind of just the billboards and, the, and the, the statements made did actually make people think about stuff. And in the... In the in hindsight, looking back at those kinds of pronouncements in the uh, 70s and 80s, you go, yeah, well, um, they got a lot of people talking. Apart from anything else, you know, a lot of letters to the paper and a lot of uh, discussion and a lot of, um, uh, I guess, there's there's a, a critical mass behind that that you, you start to appreciate that there are people who really... Um, you know, are really desperately concerned about this kind of stuff. Yeah, Associate Professor Dave Nichols is with us. He's Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning over at the University of Melbourne and we're talking really about urban planning, um, whole touching on a whole range of issues, whatever occurs to us this morning, uh, talking at the moment about uh, the climate emergency at the local government level. And I suppose, Dave, the... Uh, ability there is stuff that local communities can do just like there's stuff that we can do at home with regards to particularly around emissions I mean we can I know that you can't make up for inaction at the kind of big level or industrial level or whatever but Mm -hmm. local governments do have control over you know some of the design of their cities or the way that different infrastructures run the energy that they're purchasing like there's a whole lot of things that communities actually can have a look at and there's a whole lot of said oh we're going to be net zero like we've you know in the Hepburn area and Ballarat and we're seeing that um yak and dander they're all they're all going um 100% renewables or you know net zero you can show like great models you know right at the very very local level that you know people can understand how how they might address these things or what I suppose in a way what the future might be look like might look like I'm no expert on the future, as has already been established. But um, well, the, well, if we go by what's <laughs> happening at the UN at the moment over in Madrid at the big climate negotiations, the the future at the moment on current trajectories is looking pretty bleak. Um, but I think that said, a lot of the solutions are there. It's the will to in- implement them, and I think if there's a will at local government, go subnational governments. I know, know exactly. Go I, for it. I totally agree with you, Kelly. That, and this is you know, I think that. Uh, so we can this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of issue with the with the kind of conference that I was at last week you know you kind of you end up doing it you, you know hand wringing and i guess beyond that what can you what can you practically do and i guess you you support some some endeavors and others but um it's sort of you know unfortunately it's my um it's my role as an academic to just sort of uh, sit back and watch the passing show and go oh that's i wonder what will happen how interesting 
So, so is, is that what your, I mean, what will your research consist of when you're looking at this next year? Will you be kind of, you know, visiting local councils or just drawing together what's happened around the country? And um... The idea at this point, Dylan, is to make a, a to undertake um, some research in, in league with particular progressive councils mm. and um, to, to, to paint a, a broader picture of, of where this might lead and, and how it might work. That's why, you know, I mean, I do think that it can actually be uh, very, very effective and uh, I'm very interested to see what, what we come up with. It, it could be uh, really good. Yeah, well, we look forward to, to that. And, I mean, I did mention cladding earlier and uh, we haven't spoken to you about it at all this year on the radio, but I wonder, I wonder what you think that did for our focus on the quality of buildings Dave, because I think there is, you know, alarm uh, that we could have building materials being used at such a large scale that aren't safe, uh, but also the remedies available for kind of consumers, if we can put, mm. call people that, mm-hmm. uh, aren't really yeah, there or clear. Consumers. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, this is – and this is one of the things about our, our nation that um, – it's the biggest investment that most people make is their is real estate, and you know I don't mean people with investment properties. I just mean people who own the homes that they live in, and I think people rather, na- well, you say this with hindsight, rather naively, but you know totally understandably, assumed that when they bought a property, it would be safe, and and you know double double whammy, no, it's not, and and also. Um, the government is not really that equipped to do anything or, or not interested in doing anything about or the government's, you know. So the state government has semi-come to the party. At least they've started um, rolling out some some remedies and some compensation. But it is it is funny that the... It's not funny. It is bizarre that the, uh, the developers as it seems to be so often the case, uh, seem to be sort of, yeah, oh, yeah, that oh, that happened, see you later. Um, you know, it is uh, it is very much uh, much more of a caveat emptor situation than I think people realised when they bought into these places. Who would think about it? Who would ever have thought about it before? Yeah, there's an that assumption that, that the proper materials would be used and it would be safe. And, I, I mean, I guess they were... It wasn't illegal what was being done, so that's that's a legislative issue i'm sure developers would say yeah well you know if it was illegal of course we wouldn't do it it was legal so we did it um i don't know it's a it's a it's a sad um indictment on the on the system it is one of those things i think you'll find happens again and again in huge boom times this is an happened in the 80s didn't it yeah 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 it's a, this is an unprecedented boom time though and this is the boom that's just gone on and on and on um and you know it's like you can just sort of uh, I'm not going to say that I identify with or empathise with people in state government, but I, you can sort of think that they'd be going, oh, when is this going to end? And, you know, maybe then we can start dealing with some of those ramifications, but it's uh, it, it seems unlikely to end. It's, uh, you know, there's been an up, upswing in the in the market, uh, just in the general real estate market. It's, it's sort of, it's back. It's never ending. The boom is never ending, uh, you know. We're um, we're doomed. I mean, basically, we're doomed. Optimistic note to end on. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming in with all of your, uh, I don't know. Um... I don't know either. But <laughs> it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> and uh, uh, Dave Nichols will, I hope, be back with us in uh, twenty twenty well, on the grapevine. We we're doomed. So who knows? Be safe over the summer, Dave. Uh, you too. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And in what has become an annual event on our last grapevine of the year, Tony Wilson, creator of the Speakola, all speeches great and small website, comes by with his picks of the most significant speeches across a range of genres. And I checked earlier, Tony, you didn't find the red carpet we laid out for the Speakolies. Uh, you must have come in the wrong door. No, I saw it. It went all the way down Blythe Street, which I thought was uh, incredibly, um, you know, it was very, uh, it was very, very innovative of you to think to go such a distance. 
guests. With well, Dylan did it, so oh, yeah, well I mean, done. You know, we do a lot for our guests, but you decided to come in the back way to avoid the people flocking <laughs> right. you. You know, the masses of people out on the street. The speecheratsy—they're very um, <laughs> passionate about these awards, and every year, and you'll see all the press releases afterwards. So, uh, big year in speeches. Big year, yeah. Always big. There's always uh, great speeches going down, um, but we were just sort of lamenting. I mean, what was the best Australian politics speech of 2019? Was it "If you have a go, you'll get a go"? Is that the height of speech? Uh, we believe in miracles or something. <laughs> yeah, a it's low be- bar, isn't it? It was. It didn't feel like. Normally, there's a bit of a sense that the. Um, that the protest speeches or the, the the opposition will come out and say this is why things are wrong or this is not normal or um, in America we're getting a lot of those at the moment that are kind of grandiose high oratory to sort of say that the situation is completely wrong whereas I don't think we've had that kind of great oratory from the parliament in Australia this year. Like maybe, Can't in think fact, of I'd a love thing. a suggestion. If you loved a speech from a Labor MP or an Independent or a Greens MP about things being wrong, um, then I would love to have it suggested and I'll put it up. But there haven't been a lot of sitting days this year, have there? Maybe that's part of the reason. That could be it. I was going to ring because I I am friends with Pete Khalil and I've actually helped him do some speech writing, the local member here in uh, what's Bob Hawke's election, your your electorate. Um, And Pete at least has been there. He might be able to tell me what's been a great speech. But they haven't sort of hit because I usually grab the viral speech and then say, well, that's one that people are sharing, like Kerry O'Brien last week at the Walkley Awards or a fortnight ago. It starts getting shared over and over, so I put it up. But it hasn't. There hasn't been an Australian politics speech that has had that impact this year. Well, what about any great policy that they could have spoken about? Because that's that's maybe what's lacking. Because we had some, you know, high watermarks in in previous years. I, I mean, I think last year we were talking about speeches around the plebiscite, around yeah. um, same sex marriage, and so there were some. Well, yeah, there were some issues to talk yeah, about, whereas now me. it's pretty light on, I think. So Jacinda Ardern went up a few times. So in the aftermath of Christchurch, I ended up giving her the speak only for a politician this year. So she did some beautiful uh, oratory and managed to capture the sadness around the Christchurch massacre. So Just hear a bit a of that one now. A nation of more than 200 ethnicities, 160 languages. And amongst that diversity, we share common values. And the one that we place the currency on right now and tonight is our compassion and the support for the community of those directly affected by this tragedy. And secondly, the strongest possible condemnation of the ideology of the people who did this. You may have chosen us, but we utterly reject and condemn you. Their first speak holy awarded to Jacinda Ardern. Yes, she gets one. And a special mention in the UK to Rosie Duffield, who gave a speech about, um, I guess, emotional violence that was inflicted by her partner. And she was talking about how traumatic that was and the situation a lot of women find themselves in. It was uh, when they when they ask you out, they don't present their rage. Was the line I took from that, and and I thought that was the best of the of the UK parliamentary speeches this year and again I was thinking where are the Brexit speeches where's the great and we've put some up in previous years of the of the great um, you know anti-Brexit speeches and even great Brexit speeches Uh, but this year I haven't got so many of them again I'll take suggestions if I'm missing one that happened you you, you thought that Boris Johnson's dad should get in well I thought so just because he he um, I I mean it wasn't lost on others either the 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 lovely idea of there's Boris in in Parliament talking about crusties and the Extinction Rebellion and there's his dad sitting on a panel at one of the mm. many Extinction Rebellion events saying how proud he was to be such a crusty and I think, you know, maybe it wasn't a speech so much as a, a one-liner but yeah, it was yeah. a, well, I, I a wonder, nice one-liner. I mean, if we might still get a great speech from the UK with the election coming up you know, this week if something might happen in, in the world of speeches there. Well, I put up Theresa May's resignation because she is a strange one that, that if you actually 
actually read her speeches, they're often quite beautifully worded. She doesn't come across as a highly charismatic figure, but she is a, a really good speaker. And there's a couple I put up on Speakola that are, are absolutely first-class speech writing. Um, in the US this year, um, there has been... Obviously, it's just really... It feels like immolation over there. Um, and with the uh, impeachment proceedings, I, I did make a note and put up Bill Taylor's um, speech, which was the one about... He, he's the... Uh, ambassador to Ukraine and he gave just I thought a really solid description of who he was and and uh, why he was an impartial figure in this uh, in this drama uh, Joe Biden not a bad speaker one of his best one was uh, we are in a battle for the soul of the nation which was around the time of his campaign launch um, and yeah did you have a US one that you liked this year in the anti-trump um, the pro-Trump stuff I don't tend to gravitate towards. I try to put him up because I sort of feel like it, the side is meant to reflect the history of the world um, and Trump has some significant speeches. I, I put up, <laughs> but they're usually skewed. I, I put up the one from the UN last year where he said that he'd achieved more than any other US president in history. <laughs> That's the sort of Trump speech I put up. Well, the recent one where he was talking about uh, Justin Trudeau being a nice guy after he was called out from, you know, kind of making fun of him. Yeah, the UN yeah. as well. So not a great speech. Oh, they're horrible you know. speeches. And, and the words are terrible. I love and, uh, it that he puts very before everything. Yeah, very. And, and then when it's quoted in the news here, they always leave the very on there. So, you know, it's a very important decision. It's a very... Yeah, he's terrible. <laughs> and, and so he's not. He, he doesn't get an award and he's not being celebrated here. Um, which one have you got next there, Dylan? Um, well, probably the most, uh, you know, arguably the most famous international speech um, from this year, Greta Thunberg, yeah. would you say? This one, I think, wins the gold speaker, Ollie. So we've just gone uh, straight to gold. Your first climate strike was a lonely event a little over a year ago. And in the intervening time, you have sparked the interest of millions, literally of children around the globe, demanding action for climate change. What's your message to world leaders today? Uh, my message is that we'll be watching you. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? And it goes on for a bit longer, but we'll leave it there. But I mean, we have jumped straight to the top, but that's the... The oh, Gold Speak Holy winner. Well, I, I was going to either give it to her or John Stewart. So the one that had the most impact on me, there are elements of that that are very... Um, I mean, the, I just happen to believe that that is, you know, I'm in a panic about <laughs> the climate and that uh, spoke to me. And she's, she, last year I gave her the second place um, and I'd never heard of her really. So I, I put out the call on Twitter for the speech of the year and someone said, oh, Greta Thunberg at the UN. And I listened to it and went, yep, that's the second best speech of the year. And I reckon she is amazing in the sense that she's so different to other speakers because yeah. she is very uh, down the barrel. She really takes her audience apart she's unapologetic she's sort of tough and fierce i think that and takes the audience apart is really on point because you hear them laughing ah, ha, ha, and then they're just like it? whoa hang it's on. almost this she's patronizing, talking about me that yeah. patronizing laughter like oh yeah we're going to be watching like well done and then yeah she just kind of continues and yeah. sleeps at home there will not be any solutions or plans presented in line with these figures here today because these numbers are too uncomfortable and you are still not mature enough to tell it like it is so she just kind of gun barrels people. And so, I mean, there were parts of it, though, when you close your eyes, you go, she almost sounds like she's in a 1960s overacting movie to some extent. Um, and the ones last year, I actually, in some, I sort of liked better in the, in the sense that it was less dramatic and more, mm. even more gun barrel straight, I think. But 
you know, it's, it's, it's probably the most significant, the most shared. It'll be a historic moment, that speech this year. It will. And also, I, I do like um, when we're speaking with Tony Wilson awarding the speak Olies for this year. But in, in past years, Tony, young people... Get, get high up on your list. Well, I remember that you know, we called, yeah, we called BS, yeah. and I think that uh, was also a powerful speech. And yeah, and she did another great one this year on the anniversary about her depression a year on from the massacre in in Florida. So um, yeah, that was Emma Gonzalez is amazing, um, and so, uh, yeah, just those two have been standouts on the speaker Ollies in recent times. Um, the eulogy of the year. Um, Oh, I loved one that was given by Andrew Rule, the writer at The Age, for Les Carlone. Um, I'm still trying to find the video for it. Um, congratulations to Paddy Carlone, who actually won a Walkley last week. But um, that's a beautiful text. Um, and But the one that I think was shared the most and the one that went around a lot was um, by Wayne Schwoss, the, the former North Melbourne footballer, uh, Sydney footballer as well. And he gave a speech about depression um, at the funeral of Danny Frawley. And I thought that was uh, pretty much the eulogy of the year about masculinity, about um, the sort of toughness the mythology of being a man and um and how it needs to end really about the people not being able to express their vulnerabilities um it was quite a beautiful example of starting with the issue um he does half the speech on um on that element of macho culture and then the second half of the speech weaves into who danny was and why he meant so much to him and i thought you know very skillful, beautiful delivery, amazing words. Very emotional too. Oh, incredible. So yeah. it just really knocked me over that one. And I'll, I'll give that the eulogy of the year. Um, what else have we got in the categories there? Well, we've got, um, I mean, which award? Sports speech oh, I wanted sports to play. Speech. Now this one, Megan Rapino was very um, popular this year. She was shared a lot. Um, she's the US women's soccer team star who has uh, become, you know, I guess one of the great advocates for diversity and and uh, inclusion and uh, also for equal pay for women. Um, and her speeches, she's an outstanding speaker. She really grabs you. Um, but the one, like, I just sort of, when I heard this, this is quite a silly speech, but I just You've got to play it. I've got to play it in full, I yeah, think, because it I, is... I thought this was the sports speech of the decade. I wasn't hurting as much as the lads who were, who were out there, but I definitely felt it, and I know how how hard the boys have taken that. Um, be disappointed with the account that they that we put out, but uh, we got another week to to get back on the horse, you know, and take that horse to the water. And you can ask that horse. You can say, "Hey, horsey, do you want do you want to have a drink, or do you want to swim?" Yeah, and it's up to that horse to then realise what he wants to do in his life and that horse at the moment wants to go out on Saturday he wants to clippity clop all the way to the stoop and he wants to say hello to those fans and he goes and he goes I'm sorry about the result last week but I'm going to give a better performance here at home against Bath he's a slightly Irish horse um, so we're looking forward to like I say getting back on that horse and are you looking forward to getting back on the horse six months since we lost are you I don't like horses I can't ride <laughs> so that's just a beautifully shaped that's amazing perfect um, reply um, the, the free wheeling of it the fun of it yeah the, when you I mean, said that one true I started to watch I'm like oh this just sounds like another sportsman going through the motions getting yeah. back on the horse and then it just goes <laughs> in that direction <laughs> a masterpiece isn't it that's incredible and so um, I gave that sport, sports speech of the year um, in terms of issue speeches like Greta, we did Greta Thunberg and I think she probably wins the uh, the the issue speech of the year but I said that the one that I was absolutely putting right up there with her for the gold speak Ollie was John Stewart the Tonight Show or the you know what was the show again uh the Daily, Daily Show. Show. Oh, that's right. Yeah, many years on now, but um, he gave a speech for the first responders um, from nine eleven, and he it is a evisceration of Congress. So basically, they have not received the benefits they were promised. Many 
it's, it's had all sorts of debates. It's not gone through there, and then the Senate's knocked it back, and it's gone weeks, have become months, have become years, and these people that are dying who inhaled the dust of 9-11 um, were sitting there in the Congress chamber. But the congressmen weren't. The congressmen and women weren't sitting in the chamber, and he just took them apart for not He just shames them, doesn't enough. he? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. And so I thought um, John Stewart for... The, it was probably the best speech given in a parliament, um, by, certainly by a non-parliamentarian and certainly by an entertainer this year. Um, with a nod to Kerry O'Brien, um, deserves the Australian version of that um, from the Walkleys a fortnight ago. Got a bit of that one yeah. to play. This year, for a brief moment in the history of Australian journalism, every significant news organisation in this country put its competitive instincts and its differences to one side and united in one voice to stand against the unacceptable step down the road to authoritarianism that we witnessed recently. Authoritarianism unchecked can lead to fascism. Fortunately, in this country, we're still a long way from that. But a study of history amply demonstrates how fascism begins. Freedom is usually eroded gradually. It might happen over years, even decades. Its loss is not felt day by day, but we will certainly know when it's gone. So far, the Morrison government has resisted the industry's appeal for fundamental protections of a free and robust press to be enshrined in legislation at the very least, not placing journalists above the law, but enshrining in a practical and meaningful way their special place as a crucial pillar of democracy. Perhaps the government is intending to wait us out, waiting for the issue to go away in the hope that most people in this country are so consumed by bread and butter issues, so consumed by their own lives and personal struggles and challenges, that they won't care enough when the chips are down to support something as abstract as the spirit of democracy or the spirit of freedom. Because you can't cash in the spirit of something at the bank as you might a tax cut. That is why we have to remain absolutely resolved to keep this campaign going. And yeah, Moses, so he was referring to the raids on the ABC journalists from earlier in the year and about the independence of the ABC and uh, the fact that there was a industry-wide effort to condemn what happened. Um, and, but amazing speech, and it goes to show that when people move out of employment, so Kerry O'Brien now I think he's on the board of the Walkleys mm-hmm. and he was speaking as a almost the introducer to the awards, that you have that freedom to say... Or at least um, there was a lack of inhibition in that speech. He just doesn't care. Very pointed criticisms of the government, which, of course, you know, you would need to be more careful of in your position as a a journalist working for the ABC. Yeah. That said, we are hearing more journalists actually naming the fact that they can't get answers out of this government. I mean, it's all there for us to see. Yeah. uh, That it's hard, you know, straight question does not get a straight answer. And there's no sense, really, that an answer that we deserve an answer to many of the questions being asked. So I think we are starting to see Mm. more people, maybe, you know, working journalists starting to name that. And I'll be interested to see what happens next year. Yeah, and uh, if I'm awarding the music speaker, Ollie, I've actually given him one before, I think, but the um, uh, T-Bone Burnett spoke at South by Southwest and he gave this very long and quite poetic speech about uh, Facebook and Google and where we're at in terms of this, what he regards as a tyranny of the internet. Um, and that's a theme, so I'll sort of say that's the music speech of the year with, with a nod to Kerry Simpson's beautiful eulogy to Chris Wilson. I love that one as well. Um, but the, the the one on the similar topic was Sasha Baron Cohen um, just a week or two ago. Did you see that one about Facebook and what would Goebbels have done with Facebook, I think was his line. Yeah. Um, was a, he had a reasonable crack at um, Zuckerberg. Um, and so, yeah, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, if the awards, if I hadn't thought about the awards uh, three weeks ago and had incorporated <laughs> the last couple of weeks, it could have been in. Um, Commencement, uh, congratulations to Westover. What's her first name? I'm here looking at my notes. Um, she wrote that book, uh, Education, was it? Um, 
Anyway, I, the uninstagrammable self was the name of the speech, basically about experiencing life rather than picturing it and posting it. That was a fantastic commencement this year. And also Oprah, always pretty much. She is a master. And, uh, you know, all that kind of syrup that I watched in the 1980s thinking Oprah was a certain thing, I've, in the Speakola era, come to regard her as a just a true genius of speech-making mm. and storytelling. You found respect. Do you have a perfect type of speech i mean a, a, a um, preferred type of speech a favorite not really so genre i love the fact that it can be so different so it could be a call and response like i am somebody um jesse jackson uh in 1972 was it at, at the what's what's that what's facts festival and that's just yelling out um i am somebody you know it's kind of very simple not no storytelling all about mood mm. um i love it you can have that sort of one and then i also love that there can be a speech like one of my all-time favourite speeches is um, by the um, the guy from uh, Frank Oz's eulogy for um, Jim Henson, and that's one where he just tells one story. So he goes and says that this is Jim Henson. He was a very funny and strange guy. Um, there was one day where he said, would you take your clothes off? And I want to take a photo of you. <laughs> and you go, well, what a weird way to start a story. And then, But you're, you're drawn along. And you find out that Jim Henson has this amazing gift planned for Frank Oz, which involves him being nude in a kind of diorama that he was building. So he wanted so when you looked through each window of this diorama, you could see different poses of Frank Oz nude. Right. And he wanted to give that to Frank Oz. And so he needed to take some nude photos of it. And so that that story, which just said so much of, you know, if Jim Henson was uh, it was it was just this weird and wacky and way out an imaginative gift he had planned that was going to take him fifty hours to do, you know that. Um, but he did it for his friend, um, and and so but would introduce it to him as, "Can I take a nude photo of you?" Mm. And so Frank Oz's journey through that long story, which has, you know, none of that we call BS or I warn you from Greta Thunberg, the more traditional. I'm thumping you with a message throughout here and I might incorporate a story. But then his, yeah, um, Frank Oz went with only story. Mm. You know? So there's so many different ways to do it. Um, I love some story. You know, I think if you're doing a speech, whether it's a best man or um, you know, bridesmaid or groom or uh, bride or birthday, if you can have a way of incorporating the specific, mm. that, you, that works most often. Um, whereas, you know, in some political speeches you can steer out of that, but generally you're looking for a story about life and the world to keep people listening. How long has the Speakola era been so far? So uh, we turned five in August, and uh, this year doubled our traffic. So I think we've had one point one one point wow. one million. So hits. people want huge growth. People want to hear actually. People want to hear rhetoric. They yeah. get drawn to to those making important points or celebrating yeah. other individuals? or I think they're one of the most shared things. So when you think of what goes around on, in this social media era, um, it's someone who makes you cry or someone who inspires you and does it with oratory. It's often that that gets sent around. Um, and, you know, it's beautiful and it's a real skill and it kind of, you know, I feel like I've gone back to university with it because, you know, suddenly you're hearing um, Muhammad Rahman's speech from 1971 and the Bangladeshi independence movement was this and suddenly I've had this kind of world history education just through speeches. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's really been wonderful and, uh, you know, as an art form, obviously I'm biased, but it's uh, it's. It's glorious. Well, it's also a speaker was a great resource for when you do need to write a speech because I find that, found myself in that situation earlier this year at a, at a wedding, and I went and had a whole look at a whole bunch of wedding speeches, and you can see the different approaches people take, and um, and you know, sort of hone your craft by looking at what's come before. Yeah, absolutely. So I get a lot of that as well. That people writing eulogies and wedding speeches do go there, and in fact, if you do that, if you would send me your speech later and sort of repay the favour. Because I think some people think, oh, I'm not that good. It wasn't that good. 
you know. But really, if there's kind of love invested and um, and you did your best and there's storytelling and you're you're honouring a person and that person doesn't mind and you don't mind, then you know the the favour is repaid from using the site to write your speech because someone might be able to you know do the same. Um, and so I absolutely love getting them. And there's no uh, there's no quality bar. So it's not like you'll send it in and I'll go, look, I'm really sorry. That is just a crap speech. <laughs> the only way, only reason I would do that is um, if it was kind of offensive. So if it was, you know, and, and that's a pretty, it's, it's, so long as it's not mean or, you know, defamatory or, you know, really, um, basically I'll put them up. So send them through and um, there really is, that's one year, like I've only got two or three wedding speeches for the year, but I've got 50 on the site. Mm, so as yeah. you say, you can, you can, go through and help write your speeches. Right. Um, so eulogies and wedding speeches, send them through with a photo and text and that's it. I have to send the one th- I wrote for my grandmother through to you. Yeah, She absolutely. was a wonderful woman. Oh, uh, it's it. making me think of her. Uh, thank you, Tony. Well done. Speak Ola is where you go. And um, just to recap, the, the polished gold uh, Speak Ola goes to Greta Thunberg, followed up by the not quite... I don't know, shiny gold, the extra yeah, the gold, the other gold, to silver to John Stewart. And then so let's give the horse guy the bronze. <laughs> right. And Greta will be sailing over here to collect, the, um, to collect the award That's as right. well. And then yeah, what, yeah. And also it might take I, a few few months, I think. Yeah. So I also take suggestions for, you know how I said I didn't love the Australian speeches, the, the polit- political speeches, I might be missing one. So who gave the great speech in Parliament this year? Um you know, anyway, I'd love to hear. So send me a te- uh, send me one at uh, Tony at tonywilson.com.au. The, the Speak Olies for another year finished. We're going to roll up the red carpet, store it in the back room here at, at Triple R until next year. Thanks for coming in, Tony. No worries. Thanks, guys. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Kalia and Dylan in the last hour of the Grapevine for 2019, and we're going to spend um, at least half of that speaking with Sally Rippon, who comes in monthly with The Reading Room, of course, creator of the Billy B. Brown and Polly and Buster series, and with her, Leanne Hall, um, and both of them are going to be talking about summer reads for kids, and Leanne is an author herself. Um, Her debut novel, This Is Shyness, won the Tex Prize, and she is also over at Readings, um, where she, let me get your title right, she's a children's and YA specialist at the independent bookstores um, kids section, which um, that's been there for a couple of years now, though, hasn't it, Leanne? Yeah, I was going to say it's brand new, but it's not. No, yeah, all of our shops have children's sections, but about three years ago we kind of, the kids section at Carlton split off into um, the shop next door just across the alleyway, so we have a dedicated kids shop there now. Yeah, and hello, Sally. It's good to be here. I can't believe it's the last one for the year. Nor can we. <laughs> <laughs> so should we get stuck into it? People just love this because uh, I suppose, you know, it gets to that time of year where, one, people have time to read and, two, people need things to give kids that they know aren't going to be a waste or plastic junk or whatever and something that can be shared and enjoyed. And so, you know, pretty much books. Books are the perfect yep. person. Yep. <laughs> That's what people do. So should we start with picture books, Leanne? Like um, you yeah. see so much coming across your gaze at, at reading. Yeah, so much. Um, when I think about summer reading for kids, I always think that it's got to be something, often it's quite beautiful, something that's a little bit more illustrative or coloured or gorgeous, um, but also something that can last a few reads or, you know, be last a whole summer. Also nothing like maybe too heavy or serious. I always think summer reading should be a little bit more light and entertaining. Um, so for picture books, I think one that will keep kids really occupied is Beast Beast. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid having one of those books that has little envelopes and letters inside it. So it's this style of book um, that has lots of envelopes and letters to unfold and pour over. Um, And it's about a monster who captures a child who he then calls dinner uh, and then contacts all of his monster friends to come over um, to celebrate with dinner. And this then, is light reading we're talking about for summer. Reading, though, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, extremely light and realistic summer reading. Um, Put another kid on the barbecue. Yeah, though. exactly. Yeah. So, But luckily dinner is a very clever child and using um, all of the Monster Friends letters and all of their food to- intolerances and sensitivities and tastes manages to kind of like sort of wangle their way out of the situation. 
Um, so it's really funny, really colourful. It's got that interactive element with the letters. Can you remember the name of the author of that? Uh, Emma Yartlett mm-hmm. is the author of, of Beast Feast. Um, another picture book that I think is really fantastic is Kui Mitaka by Jasmine Seymour. Um, I was a real fan of uh, Jasmine's first book, Baby Business. Um, and in Kui Mitaka, you essentially get a lovely guided tour of Darug country, which is in the greater Sydney Basin area. And uh, Mulgo, who is Black Swan, takes you to meet all these different animals and go to all these different environments and ecosystems and to view different seasons and different activities that happen in certain seasons in Darug country. So I think that one's really gorgeous as well. And do you know who the publisher is of that one? Because I know it's quite tricky to find... um uh, a lot of publishers that are really willing to publish good Indigenous writers. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that that is Magabala Books. Mm. So it's been a really, really great year uh, for books by First Nations writer, in particular mm. picture books, and Magabala does really, really great work. But also notably there's been Willem, a Birarung story, and there's also been Little Bird's Day by Sally Morgan that I've really loved. Um, so it's been a boom year yeah. for Indigenous picture yeah, books. Yeah, and Magabala, they're based up in Broom, I yeah, think, and the, yeah. the ones that brought out Dark Emu That's um, right. and, Dark, Pro- and all yeah. of his other stuff. Young Dark Emu has been this real phenomenon yeah. at the kids' shop this year and all of our kids' sections at, at readings. It just sells and continues to sell, which is wonderful. Well, isn't that good? Because I, I, I bought a copy because yeah. I'm a huge fan of Bruce Pascoe anyway and I bought a copy and I said, oh, look, said to my daughter, here it is. And she goes, oh, you know... We've just done a whole section on frontier wars at school and that just looks like school, so I'm not going to read it. And I went, oh. <laughs> Did she come around? Not yet. <laughs> well, at least it's good to know no, that the frontier but, wars are being taught in school now. Well, there's that. And I think it's also that um, she knows it's important. It wasn't yeah. that. It was just more like, nah. So maybe, you know, maybe at the end of January but when she's getting ready yeah, for school again, yeah. she might dip back in, not yeah. to put off other people getting it, by the way, yeah. but it's just... You know. Well, a good one to share with your kids, I think, because it is, doesn't look like a standard picture book, does no, it? No, it There's doesn't. There's a lot of text. There's yep. a lot of information in there, so it would be a really good one Maybe to I should be reading it to her, actually. <laughs> That's what I should be doing. Absolutely. All right, note yeah. to self. Um, yeah. So let's head to the junior. Um, so there's middle and junior. Which comes first, junior? Junior, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I always think of junior as being around about sort of six, seven, eight-year-olds when kids are just either learning to read independently or just sort of getting off the ground with their reading. Um, So for this age group, I always think it's nice to have um, short stories or short episodes in a book and for there to be quite a bit of illustrative material to go along with it just to hold the reader's attention and then they can look at the pictures and kind of draw conclusions and it helps them with the words. Um, So two that sort of fit into that kind of category or maybe three. It's it's hard for booksellers to narrow it down. Um, I really love Ask Hercules Quick by Ursula Dubasarsky and Andrew Joyner. Lovely coloured hardcover, lots of fun illustrations. Um, basically, Hercules sees this magic set in the window of a shop, covets it a lot and needs to do little odd jobs around the apartment block that he lives in in order to earn the money to buy the magic kit. It helps that in every apartment there's a different animal living and there's a very strange part-time job, little errand for Hercules quick to run. So that one's delightful. Um, I'd also like to recommend the Real Pigeon series. Um, and this Christmas they've bought out a four-pack of like the first four books in Real Pigeons by Andrew McDonald and Ben Wood. Um, Basically, it's a posse of crime-fighting pigeons that take on crimes and mysteries in the park and around the city. Um, And they've each got their own special pigeon power that they utilise individually but also to work as a team. Um, And they're almost, almost a hybrid sort of novel, graphic novel, and there's a little bit of text, a lot of cartoons, and kids really, really love those. I really love them because we had yeah. who was it? Was it Andrew that came yeah. in? We had a lot of fun early about this those year. Well. Yeah, and mm. also just how kind of quirky, cool the pigeons are because they're based on real, yeah, real pigeon oh, style. He did pigeon research. I yeah. know. Yeah, there's some serious pigeon research behind those books. <laughs> I know. I just had off to that. I just yeah. thought it was a, a brilliant. thing. I just want to do a quick shout out because it's very hard to um, narrow it down to the Lemonade Jones books by Davina Bell, um, which are delightful and the latest one I really love is set at a school fate and it's um there's like this uh, rock band of parents that get up to perform at the school fate but there's a bit of stage fright involved and things don't turn out the way and I just thought that you know in inner city Melbourne there's so many school fates this time of year it just seemed very relatable and very realistic <laughs> that one so we also know Davina so you actually uh, some of your favorites or a lot of your favorites are actually local Authors. Yeah, yeah. At Readings, we really, really try to promote local authors and Australian authors. It's kind of part of our mission. 
um, and you know uh, Australia's a small market and our authors and our illustrators like really need our help and Australian kids like love Australian stories. They love to read about everyday Australian life. So mm. um, it's really natural for us to read and recommend a lot of books by Australians. And the added yeah. bonus of having the local authors that kids can get them in their schools or they can visit them at events in bookstores as well. So they get that real connection and, and the feeling of being part of a community as well. Yeah. Mm. And shall we move on to the next category? Middle. Middle. Yep. All right. So um, I'd like to recommend How to Make a Movie in 12 Days by Fiona Hardy. Uh, Fiona coincidentally does also work at readings. There's quite a few authors that do work at readings. Um, This is a great, great story that's like got equal amounts of heart and humour to it. And it's about a young girl called Hayley whose nan has recently passed away and her and her nan had this dream of filming this Hitchcock-inspired horror movie called Rosebud. And in her nan's absence, but with a new camera, Hayley gets together a bunch of very, very willing um, and very patient and tolerant friends from school and they attempt to film a horror film on their own as a group of kind of upper primary school kids. Uh, Really, really funny and I love to see kids taking on big projects and they they do it but with a lot of tears and disasters <laughs> yeah you can imagine um and the other one I'd like to recommend um is Lizard's Tale by Wang Wei Chan um this is a historical fiction and it's set in Singapore just before the fall of Singapore so it's an atmosphere of real paranoia and worry there's you know talk about spies um and it follows um, a young sort of street boy called Lizard and a group of his intrepid friends. And, and in it, you know, they take on secret organisations. They participate in martial arts. They kind of break into gangsters' lairs. And it sounds very, like, preposterous and, and kind of far, sort of far-fetched, but actually it really just reads like a good... It's like Enid Blyton, but in Singapore with Amazing. this really diverse cast of kids. Um I think that the author does such a great job of mixing in like historical and political and social realities of Singapore because it's it's quite complicated um, that part of history, and but just making it just a good rollicking adventure story where the kids are really achieving great things. And my impression, I wonder if it's the same as as um, with you, Sally, is that children or young people love history. If it's done right, they actually lap it up and you know like little stamp collectors like picking up bits and facts it is like looking at clues but I think the thing that's most um because I have written for the Our Australian Girl series which is historical fiction the most important thing is that kids are like oh wow kids back then felt the same way as us and I think that there's that um idea that history is something that happens to old people forgetting that they were once children themselves so I think that's what a lot of children's authors really aim to do is to make that connection with their everyday experience surely this is the hardest category um young adult um, fiction because it's just yeah. so broad because you kind of start it at what 11 12 years old depending on how advanced a reader you are and it can go right through to my age because I read yeah. you know a lot of YA yeah. um, or what would be considered young adult fiction because it's brilliant yeah mm. it does cover a lot of territory and of course a lot of like maybe 10 or 11 year olds read up a little bit into YA and as well as adults also enjoy YA so it really some people sort of like to think of it as as young YA or tween books and then think of it as older YA books. I think a few years ago there was a bit of an attempt to start up the category new adult for the more mature content <laughs> type <adult>. YA. But, <laughs> I mean, it's really – that's why I think it's great to come into a bookshop and actually speak to a bookseller because um, everyone that works there will have a, a you know, very specific recommendation, very specific taste, and they can really uh, drill down into what – and it's not even about – the reader's age it's sometimes what they're comfortable with what the maturity level is just where they're at in their development and it might not even correlate necessarily with the you know the age as a number so it is quite a difficult um category i think um i really loved um aurora rising this year by amy kaufman and jay christoph which is just a really fun space adventure with a really large cast of teenagers so um the story is generally there's like this star pupil at the aurora academy and we're coming up to like the annual draft where you get to pick your squad that you go forward into the future with as as graduates um and unfortunately he goes off on a i think very worthy rescue mission rescues a cryogenically frozen um young woman from from an out-of-flung sort of part of space and misses the draft and ends up with like all the in quotes losers all of the difficult um teenagers that no one wants on their team and then of course they you know end up 
up in a very dangerous kind of world-saving situation and have to learn to work together, and it's it's really wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. So how do you go, I mean, at this time of year, I imagine there's a lot of people coming in um, wanting to pick your brains about the sort of book they should, you know, yeah. buy for, for kids in their lives. How do you go about suggesting particular books? I mean, are there, you know, would you propose these books that you've just spoken about to kind of most people who come in, or is it really dependent on the no, type of child? really tailored. So mm. as soon as I start speaking to somebody, I just start to really try and drill down very, very fast. Um, I mean, during the year, ideally, I'll speak to the child or teenager themselves because I would just prefer to do that yeah. and get their, their taste, what they think their taste are, might be very different to what their um, parent or adult in their life will think. Um, but I always start with age group. Then I say, what have they read recently um, to get their reading level? What's been one of their favourite books this year to get an idea of what sort of genre or tone they like in the book? Do they have any hobbies or interests? Um, we can always, you know, find books for unicorn mad children or sports mad children or space obsessed children um, and, and then go from there. Um, usually I'll just get a stack of five or six books that I think are really tailored um, for this gift or this child. And then I'll be like, you know, just have a look. I'll leave you alone to have a look through those. If none of those are suitable, come back and I'll recommend some more. So. I'm not very general in my recommendations. It's usually very, very specific. And I can I can tell that you can just pull ideas from, you know, that that because you've just done all of this with no notes, yeah. um, no anything. I'm just imagining I'm actually blown, I am blown away yeah. because, one, you remembered the title and the author, sometimes the publisher and the storyline and the level and, you know, and I yeah. think what what's significant about that. I mean, that you've just pulled all that. You can just see that. I could do this literally for hours. <laughs> it's what you do do, isn't it? That's what I do. That's yeah. what people forget about the importance of a specialist bookseller as well. And you also put stuff up online for teachers and librarians I as do, well. yeah, yeah. So my job is sort of split into working on the shop floor, um, which I'm not doing a lot of the moment at the moment, unfortunately, and then also producing a lot of online content um, for our blog and producing an um, e-news for schools and librarians. So, yeah, uh, I just get involved in every side and every topic and I try to think about what's topical recently what are the kind of themes that are coming through what are people interested in often you'll get a wave of parents coming in and asking for the same thing or we might identify a need for we need more books about this or just whatever people are searching for information and looking back over the past year has there been any particular kind of trend emerge in I guess you know books for young readers um, definitely, yeah. There's, like, I've already mentioned that I feel like finally there's a great demand for um, books written by Aboriginal Australians mm. and Torres Strait Islanders. So that has definitely been a theme this year. There's been a lot of books on wellness recently, um, things about body positivity, self-care, um, a lot of books about mindfulness, anxiety, those um, those sort of things. Um, the environment has also been another really strong theme. Obviously, this year it's been a big year for student strike for climate change. So there's been a lot of books on environmental themes. Um, so I think those would be – and also graphic novels. Mm. It's like mm. this has been a trend that has just been surging up for years and years now, um, but it's really kind of hit peak, I think. Graphic novels for like the age group 8 to 12-year-olds are a really popular – uh, way to read these days and it's a, a growing category like when we first opened the kids shop we had sort of one bay of graphic novels for children and teenagers and um, very quickly it's doubled to two bays so there's a real demand for great graphic novels oh gee maybe we should ask for a um a recommendation yeah yeah i'd love to. i don't know can, can we have <laughs> okay. a ya graphic novel recommendation oh ya is actually <laughs> difficult i feel like that's the area in which um it's not been not been as popular i'd say the heart stopper um, series of books. I think there's two graphic novels in that, and that's like um, a great queer romance. So I think those have been really, really popular with teen readers. Um, for the younger age group, I feel like Raina Telgemeier, you know, almost like single-handedly kicked off the trend. She's got um, a recent one out called Guts that really focuses on a, a difficult time at school and anxiety. Um, and these are sort of semi-autobiographical graphic novels. I recently read one called Stargazing by Jen Wang. That's just a really lovely friendship story between uh, two unlikely friends that end up living as neighbours. Um, and one of them has quite a sort of a serious kind of health problem and it's 
how to be a good friend. But there's also lots of really lovely specific things about being a Chinese-American child and kind of a Chinese-American um, upbringing. So that one's also great. Fantastic. And um, Sally, you've got some books as well that you wanted to talk about leading up to the summer break. Yeah, I'd just like to give a little bit of a shout out to books that um, are good for your own kids, but also will help kids outside from um, outside of your family as well. So Adrian Beck and I have been involved two years in a row in creating a series of uh, books for Dimmick's Children's Charity, which is... Um, ostensibly to get books into the hands of kids that need the most around the country. Um, there's Total Quack Up and Total Quack Up Again and all the royalties go back to that particular charity and all the stories were donated as were the illustrations. And another great brick of a book which is just incredible is Funny Bones uh, and that was Kate and Joel Temple along with Oliver Pomerbaum edited that and that is just every child of any age would just love that because it's full of comics and cartoons and the royalty... Um, Royalties for that go back to War Child, which helps kids in uh, some really some of the most dangerous war torn areas. And so both of those are really good, amazing books that your kids will love, but also the money goes to a really good place. A double mm. gift if yeah. that's what you're looking for. Yeah. So that's brilliant. Well, um, can we'll I do tra- one more? Show oh yeah, the one next to you, or do you want to oh, mention yeah. that? Oh yeah, no, one? you can do it. <laughs> the, the sound of the dark, which is coming out of a hundred story building. Yeah, so a hundred story building um, is an incredible organisation out in the west. Um, does a lot of writing workshops for kids. And they bring out uh, a publication each year that is uh, written by children, edited by children, published by children, and all the royalties of that will go back to 100 Story Building as well. And you can get that from certain bookstores like Readings, but also online as well. So check out 100 Story Building and their beautiful publication, Sound of the Dark, because once again, supporting lots of kids outside of our own families is a nice thing to do at Christmas. And we're going to um, put this whole list up, um, recommendations from both Sally Rippon and also Leanne Hall at Readings um, on our pay- our Facebook page um, for The Grapevine. So you can find that via our page of the Triple R website rr.org.au so that you can um, check out the recommendations especially if you're yeah wanting to to set kids up for the summer or to give um, books away to other people and we should also um, say that Triple R again has got behind uh, VACA so that's a Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency's um, gift appeal for a summer and uh, you can uh, give gifts and we're, we're accepting gifts here at 3 Triple R or um, probably better still at this time um, of year where it's so close to Christmas um, they're taking donations on their website and all of that goes to supporting young people across our state and um, providing making sure every child uh, gets a gift at Christmas time. So that's Vacker's appeal. And I know, I mean, the response from Triple R listeners last year we did it uh, and and this year as well has been phenomenal. Yeah, it's been incredible, but still time They've to get They've never seen anything in. like it. That's yeah. right, yeah. So um, we know our listeners care about these sorts of things and it's mm. um, been great to see once again. But, yeah, we are a drop-off point, so you can um, come to our reception and leave a gift. Uh, thank you for all of your work this year too, Sally. Well, pleasure. it's not really work, is it? It's total it's pleasure <laughs> bringing in all of your favourite people to come and talk children's literature with us yeah. on the grapevine. It's um, a really unique thing we get to do with you monthly um, and we love you just hanging out with us anyway. I like it too, yeah. <laughs> um, and, yes. and look good on your Triple R as well because I was chatting with Leanne Hall out of the Green, Hall, Green Room before about there aren't many mainstream media outlets that actively promote children's book creators and people in the children's book industry. So, yeah, thank you again for an amazing year it's been brilliant and Leanne we'll see you in the readings bookstore (laughs) and you are like um yeah you're going to be a magnet for people going I just don't know what to get but um thank you for all your expertise this morning it's been great Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.